This is The Guardian. Today, what's behind Vladimir Putin's nuclear threats? So on Friday, I headed down to the Kremlin in the morning because uh, it was one of the biggest days in the war so far. Andrew Roth covers Russia for The Guardian. And what was happening was that Vladimir Putin was gathering his top officials, all the members of the legislature, and thousands of Russians were coming to Red Square to celebrate the annexations of territory in occupied Ukraine. Raz, dua, three, you know, there's been a countdown on television for the last 24 hours. Everybody's waiting for Putin to give the speech that everybody expects is going to be, you know, extremely aggressive. And he does not disappoint. He goes into the speech talking about how Russia is kind of regaining its sovereign lands. And he's really creating the sense of triumphalism that Russia has become strong again, that this war is worth it. And it's in the middle of this speech when Putin makes this very interesting statement about how important it is for Russia to defend the land it's taken. And he says, you know, we're going to defend these lands using all means necessary. The United States in 1945 set a precedent. America is the only country in the world that has used nuclear weapons twice when they destroyed the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. By the way, they set a precedent with that. And that's a precedent, you know, that we've noted. And it's one that is still active today. This is a speech that Putin knew that the entire world would be watching. And that was partially the idea. And there's no doubt that when Putin got on stage on Friday and when he gave this speech, the main question that he was facing and that people in the West were watching were, what is he going to say about nuclear weapons? The signal he gave to the West was back off because we are ready to use them. Since Vladimir Putin spoke last Friday, Fears that the war in Ukraine is about to go nuclear have ratcheted up. And that reaction is exactly what the Russian president intended. But how seriously should we take his nuclear threats? And what's really driving them? From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, could Vladimir Putin use nuclear weapons in Ukraine? Andrew, in order to understand why Putin is issuing this nuclear threat, give us a picture of what this war looks like right now from his point of view. What's he seeing? Putin at the moment is seeing that the war is going not very well for his troops and that his troops are in retreat in nearly every section of the battlefield. What we've seen in the last month is a pretty tremendous turnaround, an amazing counterattack by the Ukrainian army. President Zelensky says that his troops have made more advances against Russian forces. They've managed to clear more than 3,000 square miles of land. They've managed to retake Kharkiv 
region, which is a sort of Russian-speaking region right next to the Russian border. And if that wasn't bad enough, we now see that Ukrainian troops are taking land in the Donbass, territory that Russia claimed it started the war to protect in the first place. It's become very clear that Russia can't defend the territory that it's taken so far and that the Russian army is in retreat. Okay, and in response to those losses, a couple of weeks ago, Putin called for a partial mobilization, trying to bring another 300,000 Russian soldiers into this fight. How is that going? Mobilization has probably been the most stressful and, and difficult decision that the Kremlin has taken since the start of the war. There's been a strategy since the war began, really, to protect Russian citizens from it and to let them keep ignoring the war as though it really isn't taking place. In Russia, they don't even call it a war. They call it a special military operation. And the idea was basically that we can do this war, we can defeat Ukraine, and we can keep living our normal lives at the same time. And mobilization ended that illusion. All of a sudden, thousands of people are being recruited across Russia. I've talked to people in small towns where more than half the men have been called up, you know, many of them not of fighting age or a little bit older. And it really has sent an amazing shockwave through Russian society because all of a sudden the war has come home for them. Even worse, for a lot of people who have been mobilized, when they do arrive at their local barracks, they find out that there are no officers there that the barracks is in disarray, there's trash everywhere, toilets are a mess, the weaponry is old, or they're just tossed in a field and told to kind of train themselves for the next couple of weeks. There's a sense in Russia that mobilization has become a huge mess. If you look at polling, people say that they're more stressed out than they have been kind of historically in the country in decades. And there's a sense that this is the biggest decision that's been made in Russia since the start of the war. All of that sounds like it's going really badly. So tell me about what Putin did next, this announcement that he's suddenly annexing four regions in eastern Ukraine. So at the same time as Putin announced the mobilization, there was also an announcement of another big decision, the annexation of four regions in eastern and southern Ukraine. Now, annexation should be in quotation marks because Russia doesn't actually control all of the territory that it's supposedly laying claim to. But the idea is to say that we're going to hold a vote, a referendum. People in occupied parts of Ukraine cast ballots in a referendum to join Russia, widely dismissed as a sham. Most of the people who live there can't vote. But the idea is just to get a mandate to annex this territory and say... Now this is sovereign Russian land. The four regions are Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, Kherson, and Zaporozhye. And basically these correspond to, to four areas in Ukraine where the Russians have managed to remain. And there's a very simple political logic behind this decision. So far, Russia's been fighting on territory that's in Ukraine. There are certain rules to that. If we say that this is sovereign Russian territory, and if we say that we're ready to defend this land by all means necessary including a nuclear strike, Ukraine will have to stop because they'll be risking a massive escalation if they continue to liberate their own territory. And maybe we can scare Kiev's Western backers away from this offensive as well. Let me see if I understand this. One of the things we've seen over the past few days is that Russia has actually lost territory in those exact four regions that it claimed as its own last Friday. It actually no longer fully holds 
any of them. And so many are asking, why did they rush through those annexations? Why take over land that they probably knew they couldn't hold? But from what you're saying, the point of annexation is not so much to consolidate control over these territories, but it's actually about sending a message. It's saying that if you attack Russia, we'll defend it with nuclear weapons. And these four territories, these territories are now part of Russia. Exactly. I mean, the idea is to extend the Russian nuclear umbrella, the territories that Russia is willing to defend with nuclear weapons, onto these territories in Ukraine, even some territories that Russia doesn't control. Okay, let's take this nuclear threat seriously for a minute. What are the scenarios in which we think Putin might actually use the weapons? What might his red lines be? There's a couple of them. And of course, this is mostly speculation because it's so unclear at the moment under what conditions Russia really would use their nuclear weapons. And I think that we could probably break them into three different sections. The most unlikely is a direct attack on Russian territory pre-2014. This is before the annexations in southeast Ukraine or in Crimea as well. You know, this would be, we could say, mainland Russia, where there's no dispute basically about the territory that's held. In this case, we can look at Russian nuclear doctrine, the kind of official document that's put out by the Russian government about when they would use nuclear weapons. Technically, it says that Russia would use these in a case where it faces an existential threat. We usually interpret that as an attack on Moscow, a nuclear attack on the country, something that we think of in like a Cuban Missile Crisis kind of situation, a massive attack that requires a kind of massive response and mutually assured destruction. Okay, so that's the first scenario. If Russia itself is is attacked, if it's hit with a nuclear weapon, Russia reserves the right to respond in kind. What are the other scenarios? The second one would be involving Crimea, which is in a kind of middle state right now. Russia annexed Crimea in 2014 and held full control over the territory and seemed to think that it would be there forever. It more or less pretty quickly established de facto control. But nonetheless, Ukraine uh, in the last year in particular has said that its, its long-term goal is naturally to return its sovereign territory. And uh, Crimea is still internationally recognized as Ukrainian territory. And Putin in one of his speeches actually extended nuclear doctrine a bit. And he said, it doesn't just relate to an existential threat to Russia, but also a threat to its territorial integrity. To defend and protect our country and our people, we will use all the means that we have. That's a kind of big step forward because it means that not only are we now discussing a kind of massive strike against Russian territory, but we're also talking about a claim on a territory like Crimea that Russia has control over pretty clearly, but that nobody recognizes. Interesting. So he's saying, I reserve the right to use these weapons, not just if you attack Moscow or what's internationally recognized as Russia, but even if you attack a territory like Crimea that Russia occupies, but that nobody recognizes. Exactly. You're lowering the threshold uh, to really say that even a border dispute um, could really result in a kind of massive retaliation from the Russian side. And then we have the third case, which I think is really presented by the new annexations. First of all, these are annexations that clearly exist just to protect these territories. Russia doesn't have full control, and it's very likely they're going to lose control uh, over some of the towns in Donetsk, Luhansk, uh, Kherson, and Zaporozhye in the coming weeks. 
And so this is much more of a kind of defensive doctrine. Can we just say that this is Russia and that we reserve the right to use nuclear weapons at this point? Hmm. Okay. It's that third scenario that has everybody worried right now. Let's say Putin decides he wants to use the nuclear option to defend these annexed regions. What are his choices? What could he do? This is where Russia might start considering in order to halt the attacks on the battlefield and the losses using a low-yield nuclear weapon, something that it thinks might either turn the tide on the battlefield and stop Ukrainians in their tracks, or something that it just thinks might scare people enough to kind of scare them away from continuing to advance. Interesting. When we talk about a low-yield nuclear weapon, what does that mean? What does that look like? A weapon that would be mounted on a missile. It could also be dropped from a plane or, or launched from a submarine as well. And it's something that would have a lower yield or comparative yield to the, the weapon that the U.S. dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. It's something that could either destroy you know, a small army base or maybe a bunker underground to something that could be large enough to destroy a kind of small city or a small town. This kind of weapon has never been used in combat. So in many ways, we're looking into the unknown. When you think low-yield nuclear weapon, I mean, part of me wonders, okay, is that going to be something less destructive? But actually, it sounds like it would still be absolutely terrifying. Right. We're talking about a horrific weapon with a lot of unknowns. We don't know what the consequences would be of using it in terms of radiation, in terms of just what it would do to the people that it hits. We also don't know what that would lead to next. You know, once that taboo has been broken, does that mean that more of the same can happen? Does that mean that it might also provoke a very large response from the West? We're really standing on the edge of a precipice in terms of the use of these things. And we have very little sense of what the Kremlin is actually ready to do. Okay. And what if Putin decided that he did want to mount an attack or at least signal that he was preparing to do so? Would there be some kind of warning? What would the signs be that an attack might be imminent? One thing we know is that there is a kind of command and control aspect to how nuclear weapons are deployed and used. It's not like there are Iskander missiles, which are mounted on the back of a truck, just driving around Russia. They're in storage. You have to get them out of the bunker, you know, put them on the train, and then you have to push them toward the front. That would give Western powers a period of time to prepare for what's going to happen next. Because the thinking goes that it's not really worth doing this secretly. If you're sending a message, you should do this publicly. The point is this is a kind of deterrent. There are different ideas about how it could be used and different ways to kind of escalate the situation. But one way to start might be to do some sort of nuclear test, either somewhere in Russia or somewhere near the border with Ukraine. That would be quite provocative. If you did it anywhere near Ukraine, it would obviously be a direct threat that we're ready to use these weapons in Ukraine as well. Let's contemplate the, the unimaginable here. What if Russia was to use a weapon of some form, either a low-wield weapon or one that's far more destructive? What do we think the Western response would be to that? What we do know probably from the West is that the US would be leading the response based on the kind of breakdown of who holds nuclear weapons and the U.S.'s kind of leadership in NATO. We know that the U.S. have been sending very severe messages to the Russian side, basically to say that if a nuclear weapon is used, there are going to be very severe repercussions. And I have addressed this very issue. 
uh, to and warned to uh, to not go down his path uh, and 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 conduct uh, this type of irresponsible uh, uh, behavior. These repercussions won't be sanctions; they'll be military repercussions. You know, so far the U.S. has been arming Ukraine and supporting it diplomatically and with sanctions, and I think it would make most likely the U.S. a kind of direct participant in the conflict. One thing that we have reported from David Petraeus, who's former head of the CIA, former military general, very well-known guy, he basically said that the U.S. would target every Russian unit in Ukraine that it could possibly hit. We would respond by leading a NATO, a collective effort, that would take out every Russian conventional force that we can see and identify on the battlefield in Ukraine and also in Crimea and every ship on the, in the Black Sea fleet. So, it would bring- so the use of a nuclear weapon would trigger a fairly severe direct military response from the United States. This is a very dangerous moment. Andrew, you told me earlier that Russians are already feeling extremely stressed by this war. How do you think people inside Russia would respond to the use of a nuclear weapon? I think the first response would be shock and anger. If you ask an ordinary Russian, you know, would they want to see Russia use nuclear weapons to win this conflict? The answer would be no. Ordinary Russians still to this point oppose the use of nuclear weapons in this conflict. And a lot of them are opposed to mobilization. A lot of them are opposed to, I think, the way that the war is going in general. I don't like it and I don't want it to be like that at all. Do you know people in Ukraine? Yep, I'm actually in love with one. At the same time, I do think that public opinion here is apathetic to a certain degree and malleable enough that even if there was a kind of escalation of the conflict into a new era, I really couldn't predict how people would react. I do think that most Russians would be horrified by the use of a nuclear weapon. But I also just wonder, you know, what the world would look like afterwards. And if it's not possible that Russian TV and public opinion would somehow justify its use in the long term. Do you have any sense of how the rest of the world might respond? I'm not talking about NATO countries or countries that are allied with Ukraine or Russia and its periphery. I'm talking about countries that so far have tried to just not get involved in this conflict. How do you think they would respond if it went nuclear? My understanding is that this would be viewed as an extremely negative step if Russia did escalate the conflict further and and use the nuclear weapon in it. Putin pretty recently met with leaders of China and India uh, in Uzbekistan. Modi publicly criticized the Russian leader over the war in Ukraine, saying, quote, today's era is not an era of war. And it felt like these leaders of these countries are extremely on edge. These are countries that viewed the coming period as an extremely preferable period for those countries, especially from an economic point of view. And I think that they see that this war is to a certain degree dragging us into the past. It is having massive economic consequences across much of the world. And a nuclear step by Russia would just be another step in destroying the promise that the future holds for them. Coming up, why Ukraine and the West are staring down Putin's nuclear threats for now. Andrew, we've spent the past few minutes taking these threats seriously, but what I'm wondering is, should we? How likely is it that Putin will actually follow through on some of these things that he's been threatening? It's very hard to tell. 
isn't it? And that's kind of the idea. In Ukraine and in a lot of countries in the West, uh, what Putin is doing is viewed as nuclear blackmail. President Zelensky has accused Russia of open nuclear blackmail. You know, it's not very hard to see what the game is. I threaten you with nuclear weapons and you stop winning the war against me. This is a way for Putin to get out of the war that he's losing at the moment and that he doesn't know how to stop. This is a kind of last-ditch effort to freeze things so that his troops can get a breather and he can figure out what to do next. If you view it like that, it does seem fairly unlikely that he would actually use nuclear weapons. There are so many negatives that it doesn't make any sense for them to do it. But I do think it's worth saying that a lot of people and most watchers of Russia did not think that this war would start in the first place. My best guess is still that he's not going to invade because the enormous cost that would ensue would dominate the rest of his presidency in Russia. And I don't think you could ever imagine a normal relationship between Russia and the West. And to say now that logic will dominate and that uh, Russia will come to its senses also doesn't seem clear. I think that we're dealing with a very unknown quantity in the Kremlin. And even though it seems unlikely that Russia will use nuclear weapons and, and most Western countries and their intelligence agencies are saying so, it still has to be seen as a possibility. Hmm. So if this is a threat, if it's about blackmail, is it working? Like, has it changed the way that, for example, the Ukrainians are fighting on the ground? No, it's not working. And that's going to be yet another attack on Russian legitimacy and the kind of attention that's given to Russian threats in the future. The day after the annexations were announced in the Kremlin, Ukraine retook control of a key town called Liman in Ukraine. Uh, a move seen as a significant setback for the Russian campaign in the east of the country. It is a transportation hub, a place that Russia needs to control in order to control territory around it. And its fall the day after the annexations were announced was a huge symbol because it showed that the day after Russia said, we've come here forever, their troops fled. It's hard to think of anything that could be more humiliating. Okay, so Ukraine is ignoring these threats, but what about some of the countries that are supplying Ukraine with weapons? And I'm thinking mainly of its NATO allies. Do Putin's nuclear threats enter into their calculations as they sit down and figure out what kind of help to give Ukraine and, and how much help to give? I think they have it since the beginning of the conflict. I mean, there's always been a kind of hesitation to supply Ukraine with high-end weapons like fighter jets or missiles that could reach into Russia or into Russian regions. What we've seen repeatedly is that as Russia escalates the conflict, the West provides escalated support for Ukraine and keeps providing stronger and stronger weapons. And we've been very effective in providing them those things uh, that, uh, that are, are very, very effective on a battlefield, and they have used them uh, in the right way. I don't think that the most recent threats have really affected the Western response to it. We've seen a lot of resolve in public statements from Washington, from other countries. A nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. Saying that this is nuclear blackmail and that it's not going to enter into the discussion of how to supply or support Ukraine. And so if Putin is bluffing and the West is calling that bluff, 
What does he do next? How does he raise the stakes again? I think there are two options. One is that he can escalate. It's possible that Russia continues sending these signals that it's ready to use nuclear weapons. It's possible that a test is conducted. And it's possible that this kind of chain of escalation continues. The other step is to step back. One thing that we've seen in recent days is that Russia has been hesitant to say exactly where the borders of the annexed territories are located. This has been quite funny because if you asked me right now to give you a map of what the Russian Federation looks like, I couldn't actually do that because we don't actually know exactly what territories Russia thinks they annexed. The reason that could be seen as a concession is because Russia could ultimately say, well, we didn't take that bit of Ukraine. That wasn't actually part of the country that we annexed. Interesting. So alongside making all of these threats, Putin has left himself some wiggle room by not saying exactly what territory he considers Russia. He leaves a bit of space open to say, oh, you took that territory, but that's not Russia, so I don't need to respond with a nuclear weapon. That's right. It's wiggle room. I mean, that's a good description of it. One of the hidden strengths, in my opinion, of the Kremlin and of Putin is that despite often taking extremely aggressive and dangerous steps in conflicts, because he doesn't have a political opposition at home, he can always step back. He really is in the driver's seat if we're talking about a question of whether or not to use these kinds of weapons. This is Russia's decision at the moment. And all the rhetoric aside, it's something that he clearly understands. What's going to happen on the battlefield, that is a different question. Because in the end, it doesn't look like Russia can really control its fate at the moment. Andrew, we're talking to you in this moment of extreme fear and concern. I mean, what you say is one of the riskiest nuclear flashpoints for decades. But it strikes me that there is an irony here, that at this moment where Putin seems most frightening, it's actually a reflection of the fact that he's profoundly weak, that the Russian army is being routed on the battlefield, it's losing territory every day, mobilization is not going well, and that these nuclear threats, rather than being a show of strength, are actually a reflection of just how weak Vladimir Putin is in this moment. I think that's right. This is a kind of threat of last resort. I think that what's pushing it most of all is the fact that Russia knows that it's losing this war on the battlefield. Their troops have let them down. The military has been underwhelming. And as Western support steps up for Ukraine, Russia is seeing this kind of threat of losing this conflict, and it's becoming bigger and bigger. It's not dissimilar to the reason that Russia launched the war in the first place, which is that Russia felt that the longer it waited, the worse the war would be. Ukraine was becoming stronger over time. It had more support from the West. And a lot of thinking goes that Putin launched this war because he felt like he had no other choice. And we're almost at the same situation right now. The longer that Putin waits to come up with some answer to this question of how to get out of the war, the worse it's going to be for him. And the big question right now is, is there a solution where he can kind of walk away or is he going to have to find another way to escalate? And it's one of the reasons why this is such a dangerous moment is because when it comes to what Vladimir Putin is thinking, I think in the end, we don't really know. Andrew, thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 
That was Andrew Roth, The Guardian's Moscow correspondent, whose coverage of Russia and this war you can follow at theguardian.com. Thanks very much to him. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Ned Carter-Miles and Natalie Ktina. Sound design was by Axel Kakutier. The executive producer was Homer Khalili. And we're back tomorrow. This is The Guardian.